Now, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is in his 80s and he has lived a magnificent life. Remember, as a boy, Daniel was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, along with other exiles, to be trained as skilled workers and officials in his golden kingdom of Babylon. Over 70 years has passed since those early days recorded in chapter 1. Daniel has served the Lord faithfully through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's successors, the fall of Babylon, and now the rise of the Persian Empire. Now, last week in chapter 5, we saw that the Persians had conquered the Babylonian Empire and took control of its capital city, that is the great Babylon. Now, remember, decades earlier, Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar that an inferior kingdom of silver would arise that would, and that day has finally come in chapter 6. It's important that you understand that the Persian Empire covered a massive amount of territory ranging from India westward to Greece and southward into Egypt. The kingdom of Babylonia was just a small segment of the territory which was now controlled by the Persians. Now Cyrus, the king of Persia, had conquered Babylonia and its great capital city, and he had appointed this Darius, the Mede, to govern the kingdom of Babylon. The chapter begins, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, and three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel, and the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So what we see here is Daniel had survived the collapse of the Babylonian Empire and he has now risen to the higher ranks of the Persian government controlled under Darius. We, Babylonia which was controlled under Darius. And being a good administrator, Darius appointed 120 governors to govern the 120 provinces within Babylonia. So, and then there was three administrators, one of whom was Daniel, that oversaw these governors, or satraps as the Persians would call them. And one would assume that each one of these administrators oversaw 40 of these governors, oversaw 40 of these governors as they gave oversight to the 40 providences that they were given oversight of. And these three administrators would report directly to Darius. Now these administrators were required to maintain civil obedience and to be accountable for the financial reports from taxation. A person in this position had to be capable, honest, and familiar with the territory of Babylonia. These qualities needed for such an administrator distinguished Daniel among the others. Verse 3 says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel is, is distinguished here 
forget the mockery of God. That's from last week. All right. Hopefully we'll get it again. You all know this service is the test pilot. All right. So Daniel is distingu- has distinguished himself by his extraordinary abilities and his godly character that made him stand above all the others. He's the elder statesman, as I mentioned before, well into his 80s. And he had conducted himself in this fashion throughout his whole life. And as a result, once again, he is being considered as the top position. He would be considered, if you would, the prime minister of Babylonia. So what distinguished Daniel from the others? Well, we know the text has already told us in previous chapters that God had given Daniel gifts of illumination, insights, and wisdom, which gave him the ability to interpret dreams, to explain riddles, and to to solve difficult problems. But I think beyond these gifts that God had given him, Daniel had a Christian worldview concerning his work, his job, and he was the one, and he knew which one he was ultimately serving. Not the Persian government, not Darius, but God. Now, often people want to divide things in their life in two categories, spiritual and secular. So, for example, people will say, well, now, now the work of a pastor, that's spiritual. But I just work at the bank, or I'm a school teacher, or I work construction. That's secular. But that is a wrong way to look at your life. Our lives are to be dedicated to Christ. Remember, we looked at in the beginning of the series, Jeremiah's prophecy to the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 21, where the prophecy tells them to be faithful in the ordinary things of life. Remember, prophet Jeremiah told the exiles to build houses, plant gardens, enjoy food, get married, start a family. And these are the normal things of life. Not spiritually spectacular, But we see spiritual nevertheless. And as I said in the first sermon of this series, many people think they can only glorify God if they become something like a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa. But we see that God seeks glory from us through the normal, everyday things of life. As the Apostle Paul taught us, Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, if we want to find peace in Babylon, we must seek to bring pleasure to God in the normal, everyday things of life. Like doing home maintenance, caring for our yards, loving our spouses, enjoying our families, and working our jobs. In reference to our employment, the Bible teaches us that believers are to work in sincerity of heart as unto Christ, not as eye-pleasers or men-pleasers, but slaves to Christ, doing the will of God. We do our jobs with good will as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing whether good thing each one does, he will receive back blessings from the Lord. 
Whatever we do, the Bible tells us, we are called by God to do our work with all of our hearts as unto the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord we will receive a reward as an inheritance. It is the Lord that we serve. Amen? And I believe that this was Daniel's perspective. Brothers and sisters, this Christian worldview, this biblical worldview is essential for living for the glory of God in our Babylon. And we're called by God to lead disciplined lives, work as unto the Lord, earn our own living. And in these things, we should never grow weary. Believers in Christ, well, they should be the hardest workers and the most trusted. We, are, we, we don't have the same abilities, but we have the same distinguishing character that sets us apart from the others. And this was the situation with Daniel. Now, Daniel's associates were not happy about Darius's plan to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. The scripture tells us in four and five, verses four and five, at this the administrators and the satraps tried to find ground for charges against Daniel in his contact and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and, and neither corrupt or negligent. Finding these, finally, these men said, if we're ever going to find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it is something to do with the law of his God. Now, the action of these government officials goes beyond just being jealous. Their decision was designed to lead to Daniel's death. Daniel was the only target. Maybe these guys had been involved with some sort of corruption and they knew if Daniel became the prime minister, then they would be found out. So they must design a plan that would lead to Daniel's death, not just as impeachment. And they knew that Daniel was neither corrupt or negligent, but they also knew that of Daniel's devotion to his God and they must try to discredit him on religious grounds. And to do this, they found it necessary to deceive Darius. Now, it is very important to understand, to recognize that even if we live and work for the glory of God in our Babylon, there will be times when things will not go well with us. The Bible tells us that if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The scripture goes on in 1 Peter. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or trouble, a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Glorify God being Christ-like. If we should suffer for what is right, God's word tells us we are blessed. And we should not be intimidated or troubled, but rather we should sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts. Amen? 
We should seek to maintain a good conscience, knowing that those who revile our good behavior in Christ will eventually be put to shame. And this is exactly what happens in chapter 6. A delegation of these officials came to Darius representing all the government officials that had been named previously in the chapter. Now, by Darius's response, after being told that Daniel had disobeyed the decree, it is obvious that their deception led Darius to conclude that even Daniel agreed with this proposal. This delegation of high officials asked Darius to issue an edict to enforce a decree that stated that if anyone prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to Darius himself, that they would be thrown into the lion's den. And this delegation, they insisted that this decree would be put in writing in accordance to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And that little fact is very important to keep in your head. The law of the Medes and Persians cannot be repealed. So, being adequately deceived, Darius puts the decree into writing. It's important for us to understand some key components about this decree if we really want to get beyond the normal children's Sunday school class of Daniel chapter 6. First, you must understand that one of the first acts of Cyrus, the king of Persia, after he defeated Babylon, was to liberate the exiles that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar and allow them to return with the vessels of their worship back to their homeland. This is the return from exile, which was prophesied would happen 70 years later. Now, Cyrus actually not only allowed these exiles to return to Jerusalem, but he financed it. And he allowed them to begin the rebuilding of the temple. Cyrus's governmental philosophy was the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar's. Cyrus thought that Nebuchadnezzar's philosophy of captivity would eventually lead to civil unrest and civil rebellion. So he thought, well, why not just let them go home and worship their God? I control the whole territory anyway. So Darius's decree in chapter 6 was not to make himself a god or to be worshipped as a god. Because that would be in direct opposition to the Persian government's philosophy. Remember that the text has already set out for us that Darius was trying to centralize the region of Babylon which had been placed under his control. That was the reason why he had these 120 governors and these three administrators. That was the whole reason why he was wanting to make Daniel as the prime minister. Darius was all about centralized government. And this decree gave him the opportunity to centralize everything 
through him for a period of 30 days, he could get a real handle on, on everything that was going on before he turned things over to Daniel as his prime minister. You all following me here? Of course, this group of officials knew that Darius would like their proposal because it fit into his centralized governmental philosophy. But we can see by Darius's remorse, he never thought that the, of their proposal from a spiritual point of view. He was just looking at it as really centralizing his government. And he never crossed his mind. We see it from his remorse that this was going to damage Daniel in any way. But for Daniel, the decree had spiritual implications. For Daniel, Darius, through this decree, had made himself as a mediator between Daniel and his God. And that just wasn't going to work for Daniel. He wasn't going to have some ruler being his mediator to God. Now, just as we saw in chapter 1 and what we've seen throughout the whole book, Daniel could say yes to a lot of things in Babylon. But there was one thing he was not going to do. He was not going to compromise his covenant love to God. And now here it is, decades later, Daniel had served faithfully in the Persian government, but he was not going to compromise his devotion to God by going through some human mediator. Now Daniel, when Daniel heard that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. We need to understand that Daniel's actions were not out of defiance to Darius and his decree. But rather his actions were simply out of a heart of love and devotion to his God. Daniel believed that no one, no thing, was going to come between him and his God. And this is exactly what Darius's decree had done. This type of spiritual devotion is key for believers' survival in our Babylons. For Daniel, his act of devotion was a habitual part of his life, Three times a day, he would bow his knees to God, give thanks, and ask God for help. This was so pre predictable in Daniel's life that his adversaries could count on it and set up a spying station to catch him. Now, notice that Daniel's posture of prayer is something that we could and should incorporate into our lives. Three times a day, giving thanks, asking God for help. But there's one element that is of Daniel's devotion that is often omitted 
and passed over. Notice that verse 10 reads, he went home to his upstairs room. Notice where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Now, just bear with me here for a second. God could have inspired verse 10 to read like this. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room and three times a day got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he'd done before. My point is, is you could omit this phrase where the windows open towards heaven and still think, wow, this guy really has a prayer life. My point is, is that this phrase is not by accident. That God inspired these words where the windows open towards Jerusalem to be written in our text for a purpose. These words were written for a reason, to make a point. And the point is, is to underscore Daniel's deep devotion to God. Let me explain. Now, although Jerusalem is a physical city with a tremendous amount of biblical history, the Bible uses Jerusalem in a theological or spiritual sense to identify God's kingdom. And although the city of Jerusalem had laid in ruins for most of Daniel's life, the city still symbolized the greatness of God's kingdom and the reign of God in this world and in the world to come. By faith, Jerusalem was the focal point of the messianic hope of the coming of Christ. Jerusalem symbolized the kingdom of God, past, present, and future. And to pray where the windows open towards Jerusalem gave Daniel the daily opportunity to realign himself with God's direction in the world. Praying where the windows were open towards Jerusalem gave Daniel the opportunity to renew himself to the purposes and values of God as he sat in Babylon. For Daniel, praying where the windows opened towards heaven was not as much of letting his prayers out as it was of letting God in. Daniel's prayer life was not an escapism out of his, the daily grind of Persian politics, but rather it was a, a divine appointment for kingdom advancement starting in his own heart. His daily prayer was the means of bringing the power and presence of God into his immediate circumstances. And as much as Daniel's posture of prayer consisting in the bowing of his knees three times a day, what I'm suggesting is Daniel's passion of prayer consisted of praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is where Daniel would pray for God to send the messianic meteor and destroy the kingdom of this world. This is where Daniel would realign his perspective that the Son of Man is sitting on his glorious throne. 
And as he knelt, gazing out of those windows towards Jerusalem, Daniel could pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Somebody say amen in here. You guys are acting like the frozen chosen. I turned the thermostats up. <laughs> to survive in Babylon, we need both the posture and the passion of prayer. Now, the officials had all the evidence they needed to convict Daniel, and so they came to Darius. And when the king heard this, verse 14 tells us he was greatly distressed, and he was determined to rescue Daniel and to make every effort until, uh, every effort until sundown to save him. But Darius knew that the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed. So he reluctantly gave orders to, throw, to cast Daniel into the lion's den. Verse 18 says, Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Now, some have found Darius' distress over Daniel similar to Pilate's distress over Jesus. Both rulers knew that the victims were innocent, and both rulers did everything within their power to, to free them. Daniel, like Jesus, accepted the verdict of this earthly ruler, knowing that the power and authority lies with God, not with Darius. Brothers and sisters, we need that kind of faith as we dwell in our Babylon. As Daniel was cast into the lion's den, Darius says, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how God will use tragedy to work faith in a person's heart? At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near to the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's den? And Daniel was, Darius was preparing for the worst, but hoping for the best, and Daniel shouts back, May the king live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong to you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the lion's den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wounds were found on him because he had trusted in his God. Just like the flames of the furnace were not able to even bring a smell of fire upon his companions, Daniel in chapter 3, he received, and now we see in Daniel, in, in Daniel chapter 6, that the lions were not permitted 
even to touch Daniel. From my reading, it seems that Darius suffered more than Daniel. I believe that Daniel had a great night's sleep that night. The angel of the Lord was with him, and the lions had come down with a divine case of locked jaw. And I wonder if Daniel made himself comfortable by using those lions as a pillow. But Darius was not able to sleep all night long. Isn't it amazing that the most powerful man in Babylon was powerless to deliver Daniel? And maybe that's the point. God wants us to see our weaknesses, admit that we are powerless, and to surrender ourselves to his lordship, his power, and his strength. And that's what happened to Darius. Yes, Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, but Darius was delivered from, this, from the bondage of this world. God enabled Darius to cast off the bondage of this world that says that things can't really ever change. Remember the law of the Medes and the Persians? It had captured Darius so much that philosophy, things can't change, things can't change, things can't change. But now, as many of you know, God changes things. Amen? God is in the change business. God had worked in Darius' heart, and he accepts the living God who rescues and saves, performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Yes, Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, and that gets all the press, and rightfully so. But the rest of the story is that a pagan ruler comes to know the living God. So which story of deliverance speaks to you today? Are you Darius, who needs a divine change in your life to free you from the law of the Medes and Persians that it's never going to change? Or are you Daniel who needs God to shut the mouths of lions? You feel attacked. You feel the pressure. And you need God to shut mouths. I'm here to tell you that God can do both. And I'm here to tell you that God is here to do both for you today. To shut the mouths and to change lives. As I conclude this morning, no wonder the, the story of Daniel and, and the lion's den has been one of the most popular stories for thousands of years. We learn so many lessons there are so many characters that we can latch on to. The faith of Daniel, Darius's confession, the deception of these government officials, they're all part of the divine drama. But the main character is God. Don't allow any of these characters to steal the glory that belongs to God. God is the main character in his divine drama.
The one who called and molded Daniel's life into a man of faith. Who gave a faithful witness to the glory of God for decades. This is the one who is the main character in Daniel chapter 6. He is the one who changed Darius' heart to make a clear confession of faith. He is the one who spoiled the deceptive plan by shutting the mouths of lion. God is the main character in the divine drama. This same God continued to play out his divine drama. And what we'll see is centuries later, he will send a child to be exiled into a foreign land to live for his glory. For decades, this faithful servant will live an ex- a, a, a life of example without corruption. But eventually, a plot by deceptive leaders will be played out and the innocent servant of God will be put to death. He will be cast into a tomb and a large stone will be rolled against the entrance of that tomb and a seal will be placed upon it so it cannot be tampered with. A frantic dash will be made early that next morning to the entrance of that tomb to the overwhelming discovery of the miraculous life in the place of a certain death. And they will hear the angel say, He is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Don't you see the comparison? See, from the day of that from the from that day forward, the forgiveness of sins has been preached and proclaimed to all nations. The name of this holy servant is Jesus Christ, who is the one who has fulfilled God's divine drama of redemption. Amen? Amen. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, men from every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one who will not be destroyed. My challenge for you today is surrender yourself to the one who shuts the mouths of lions. Surrender yourself to the one who can do a work of miracle in you. Surrender yourself to the one who changes the hearts, our hearts. Surrender. Trust him. Have faith that something's going to happen. He's going to bring change. Surrender yourself to the one who has fulfilled all things to the glory of God. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to you today thanking you for this wonderful story, this divine drama played out in Daniel chapter 6, and so many lessons that we can learn from this chapter. Lord, so many characters that we can glean from. 
But Lord, today we want to acknowledge that you are the main character. And what we see in the book of Daniel is just a foreshadowing of the divine drama that will be fulfilled through the work of your son. And we thank you, Lord, that we can draw these parallels and see that you have always had us in mind. Lord Jesus, I come to you today and I confess that you are my Lord and my Savior. Come into my life, forgive me of my sins, claim me as a child of God. Lord, bring miraculous change in my heart. And as your child, Lord, we come to you asking for you to do miracles for us, to shut the mouths of those who seek to harm us, and, Lord, to bring a miraculous change that can be, be obvious to everyone that you are the living God. Lord, work faith in our heart. Build us up so we might glorify you all the more. And we pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.